Do you know which type of violent attack is also one of the most difficult to deal with? It's the ambush. And in this episode, I'm gonna discuss with you why the ambush attack is so deadly, and I'm gonna outline each of the elements for you, and we're also gonna discuss two ways that the ambush attack manifests in your environment. So make ready, Pearl Snap Tactical starts now. Coming to you live from an undisclosed location south of the Mason-Dixon line, this is Pearl Snap Tactical. Hey, welcome back to episode two of the Pearl Snap Tactical podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and we are launching into our two-part series on counter-ambush tactics. This is where we examine the dynamics of the ambush attack itself and how to mount your own counter-response if you find yourself in one. So starting off in this segment, I'm going to primarily focus on the anatomy of an ambush, its elements, and various types. So let's get after it. The ambush attack is probably the most dangerous and deadly attack you will ever encounter. And that's because it's a surprise attack, which makes it harder to predict and difficult to prepare for. So however, all ambushes conducted by terrorists or criminals alike share some of the same common elements. And those elements are concealment, surprise, violence of action, and lack of pro- provocation. So let's kind of unpack each one of those. In terms of concealment, it's it, the obvious is concealing the person, right? Hiding behind a barricade, some kind of cover, right? To obscure their... their, their their presence there. But it's more than that. Concealment is not just hiding the attacker physically. In fact, the presence of the attacker might be quite obviously, uh, might be quite obvious. Just think in terms of assassination of a public figure. Oftentimes, the assassination will mingle within the crowd. In fact, they have to oftentimes in order to get close enough to the intended target to get off a shot. So it could be when we're talking about concealment, it's not just the person, but it could be the concealment of the weapon or the intention to mount the attack. Element two is surprise. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, action is faster than reaction, right? Well, during an attack, the terrorists or criminals always wants to set the pace and the timing of the action. By by initiating hostilities first, i.e. being ahead of time, the attack puts you in reaction mode, and you're always one step behind having to make up ground. So it puts you at a disadvantage. Number three is violence of action. So having seized the advantage or the element of surprise, the ambush The ambusher will unleash a barrage of violence designed to stun or stagger and shock you. The ultimate goal being able to destroy you before you ever have a chance to come to your senses and mount a counterattack. And finally, we come to lack of provocation. Provocation is a speech or action that when said or done provokes another to anger or to action. So a lack of provocation means that the victim or the intended target hasn't done anything to instigate, goad, or egg the attacker on to provoke the attack, right? They were just there, right? So let's say you're a police officer and you get called out to the scene 
and you're trying to make contact with someone that you know that you perceive to be the victim and they just all out attack you straight there just because you're a cop you didn't do anything to personally provoke that attack you in fact you, you hadn't even said two words to them yet you just happened to be a cop that crossed paths with some type of angry activist or someone who wanted to attack police just because they wanted to attack police that would be an example it's not the only one but that would be an example of lack of provocation so let's move on and see how this plays out. There's actually two different types of ambush attacks. One would be a, a hasty ambush or the, um, the deliberate or the entrapment, intentional ambush. The names aren't as, aren't as important as the, the virtue of how they operate. So the most common type of ambush would be the hasty or the spontaneous ambush. These ambush... Are, or these types of attacks lack the long-term planning and premeditation. They are, in essence, they're an attack of opportunity. An example of a hasty ambush would be the purse snatcher, uh, the crew playing knockout games, the um, a, a mugger, you know, someone who with very little premeditated planning, looking for a quick uh, victim of opportunity. The second type of ambush is the entrapment or the deliberate ambush. These are premeditated attacks where the victim is actually lured into the kill zone and assaulted. So in military terms, this is the classic L-shaped ambush that we all have trained and drilled for. So when the assault and the support elements are set up in the shape of an L along some corridor or choke point. So the attackers will lie and wait for the enemy or the target to come through before they initiate the attack. For police, we've had way too many of these examples, such as when the police are gunned down while parked in their cars, or when officers are called out under false pretenses, only to be gunned down by the criminals that, uh, as they arrive on the scene. For private citizens, the, the entrapment or the deliberate ambush can come in the form of someone approaching you, asking for directions, and then attacking you when your guard's down, and then stealing your wallet. While the entrapment ambush differs from the sp spontaneous one, they both contain the same elements of concealment, surprise, violence of action, and lack of provocation. So there you have it. That's the anatomy of an ambush and its two major types, the spontaneous or hasty attack and the entrapment or deliberate ambush. Okay, let's shift into some mitigation strategies that we can use to help protect ourselves against these types of attack. In part two, we'll actually cover the counter ambush tactics this is a little different. The counter ambush tactics would be your response to it once you've become engaged. These are going to be strategies that we use um, primarily to avoid getting in it in the first place. So remember what we said earlier. The ambush is probably the most dangerous attack and most difficult to defend against because it's a surprise attack. So if the if the bad guy's done his work right, you know, you are already behind the eight ball, so to say. So it makes it hard to predict and very difficult to prepare for. 
So the key to countering or or mitigating these types of attacks really is going to lie in our ability to understand the elements, the four elements that we discussed earlier, the ambush, and know how to mitigate them. So for instance, if we know the factors that make the ambush up, so... um, what what makes it so effective is the element of surprise. So if I can mitigate the element of surprise or take it away, then I'm evening the playing field, so to say, and stacking the deck in my favor. So what are the ways that we can mitigate those elements? There's at least four, but we're going to cover like the first three here. Those three factors are utilization of environmental awareness, spatial awareness, and having an eye for terrain or effective use of terrain. The fourth factor that we'll, we'll cover uh, in, later on, but it's mobility. All right, so getting back to the topic at hand how you treat these mitigation factors may look differently to you depending on your situation so whether you are uh, out with your family or you are an officer out on patrol or you're in the military within a rifle squad um you know patrolling an area too it just it just gonna look a little different but the factors the principles are gonna remain the same so let's talk about environmental awareness so in order to negate the element of concealment that we talked about earlier the adversary's person or weapon or their malicious intent you have to take note of the environmental conditions One thing I like to pay attention to is what both Alex and I teach is your fives and 25s. So your fives and 25s, those numbers are distances. Five being uh, either five yards uh, or five meters, could even be five feet. And the 25s would be a larger, a longer distance that you push out being uh, 25 feet or even 25 meters. It just depends on your environment and how much you can see without anything obscuring your vision. So, for instance, let me just kind of talk that out. So, for instance, say you pull into a parking spot in a public lot. Uh, You're going into a Walmart or some big box store with a huge parking lot. So, before you get out of your car, you should do a quick scan of, uh, you know, five feet, five meters around you, utilizing, you know, looking through the windshield in front of you, but then also utilizing your rear view mirrors and side mirrors as well. That would be your, your, your primary focus, right? And then that five, that five feet, five yards, and then you're going to push it out to your 25, right? This, that's your secondary. So it could be two, two, three car lengths, or if you can, you can push it out further, just depending if you can see that far. That would be your your secondary uh, focus area. So once you've determined that you're in the clear, you can get out of your car and move on. And then you do the same thing as you make your way towards the building. You scan your five and then you push out to your 25 always. And don't forget to kind of look look to your sides and over your shoulder behind you every once in a while too. Right. What this does for you is um, it allows you to um, defeat their element of surprise. Right. You can pick them up. So if somebody's going to come up and ask you for a lot 
or ask you for directions, right? We can't stop people from doing that. And as far as in how we live, we don't necessarily want to, right? We're social creatures and there might be someone that needs our help and and we want we want to help people and be accessible to them. The point is though, if someone is going to approach us, we want them to do it on our terms and not theirs. And so if if we get caught flat-footed and they come up to us unaware, right, and they're already speaking to us by the time we realize that they're even there because we weren't paying attention or we didn't see them, now they're approaching us on their terms. And now our brain is kind of behind time trying to process who is this person? Do they mean harm? I mean, are they safe or whatever? And then also trying to orient on what is it that they're asking me? You know, it it creates all kinds of problems for you. But if you can pick them up early, right, that gives you time, you know, distance, you know, time, distance, that creates, uh, distance creates time, time for you to think, time for you to make decisions. So, as you do, uh, as you're pushing your fives and 25s out, you want to observe, you want to pay attention to the dress, the emotional state, the interactions of the people around you and in the environment, and looking for anything that is out of place. Now, noting these types of disruptions to the social pattern might reveal the presence of an attacker or someone sizing you up, um, someone in your midst. Another factor is to identify any exits and escape routes that are available to you. It's easy to do if you're in a stationary location like a restaurant or a movie theater, boom, you know, exits, boom, done. But uh, it could be a little bit more challenging as you're walking on foot, even moving in a vehicle, right? But it, it can be done. The next thing would be kind of related to that would be the spatial awareness and spatial awareness you know, while environmental awareness may help you negate the adversary's you know, use of conceal, concealability, spatial awareness can help you negate the element of surprise. Spatial awareness involves the understanding of where you are in relation to the objects and people around you in your environment. So using spatial awareness helps you recognize shadows, dark corners, choke points, anywhere uh, in places where an adversary uh, could launch a surprise attack. So make sure that when you approach or you're negotiating a corner, you know, swing wide around the corner um, instead of cutting a sharp turn where you could stumble upon the attacker. Um, Keeping a person slightly more than arm's length while you're giving uh, directions or answering a question, you know, protecting yourself from from a sucker punch, right? These are examples of using space to your advantage and to keep the attacker from surprising you and squaring up on you. Very much related to that would be terrain, having an eye for terrain. So apart from your own counterattack, the use of terrain is going to be your best chance to mitigate the violence, uh, um, the attacker's violence of action. So this is going to look a little different depending, again, um, on the type of the attack and the distance of the attacker. So terrain includes any kind of cover or concealment available in your area, any uh, obstacles 
that are in between you and potential threats, avenues of approach, all those types of things, right? If an attack involves a gun at a long distance, you know, you'll have to move to cover if you can. And from there, uh, whether if you're military or law enforcement, you're going to have to locate, close with, and neutralize that threat. If you're in a civilian, uh, you might need to break contact if it's safe to do so. And depending on the circumstances, you might have to launch your own counterattack. It, it really just depends. This is kind of getting off off task here, but I, I think it's relevant to the discussion. You know, sometimes people are, will give the, the run-hide-fight thing, and, and I would say that that's not a bad framework, um, but that really only works when you're by yourself, doesn't it? What if you're out with your loved ones and the two of you get separated. Not uncommon with your you know, your spouse or your significant other for them, to, you know, when you're at the mall or shopping area, for you to go in one direction to pick up something or look at it while they go shop for whatever it is that they're looking at. And so you may spend a little bit of time together. So if that attack happens then, what are you going to do? Just run away? You going to leave your loved one there? Or are you going to try to find them, which may necessarily involve you having to fight to them. And that opens up a whole nother thing. We'll do another podcast on that, but just something to think about. Um, you don't have to overthink this stuff. Our point is just to give you um, kind of a 30,000 foot view of how ambush, uh, how the ambush attack is made up, the anatomy of the ambush, and give you some strategies to prevent yourself from walking into the kill zone, as it were. So just remember, it's all about negating those elements that give the attacker advantage. We want to seize the advantage and use it towards us. So once you do that, you can dramatically increase your chances of successfully avoiding, or if you get caught in one, repulsing the attack. All right, so that is our first part on the anatomy of the ambush. Now, uh, next week we'll talk about counter-ambush tactics, but before then... It's time for your questions. Okay, the first question is from Jason from Alabama. Jason wants to know about firearms and self-defense training uh, for the disabled. This is actually kind of near and dear to my heart because Alex and I both have had injuries that required surgery that you know changed the way that we do things. And uh, whether you're disabled or not, one thing is for sure, age will catch up with us. Uh, at some point. And so your ability and capacity to do things that maybe you used to do in your past, you know, may not be there. And so we have to make adjustments, you know, in the way we exercise, the way maybe we carry and, and defend ourselves and our family. That's not unlike uh, people with disabled disabilities. Uh, the substance is the same. It's just a difference of degrees. So, in my opinion. So when you're dealing with disabled uh, disability, I would say first, number one, you've got to assess where you are, right? Most people, uh, unless you have the misfortune of, of being a quadriplegic, I mean, you have some mobility, like what can you move? What can you do? All right. Um, what, what are some things that you could do if you were able to, um, maybe there's certain muscles or things that you could strengthen and you could get some type of mobility back or increase your capacity and ability. I know I'm kind of painting with a broad brush, but that's those are things that I had to answer for myself when, you know, I had uh, 
you know, tore some ligaments in in an ankle and I couldn't walk and had surgery. And then once I was up in the walking boot or on crutches and then I was like having cabin fever and I wanted to get out and about, well, I had to think about, well, what, how would I protect my loved ones, you know, in this state? And so it got me thinking about, you know, the way I would carry or what I would do to try to protect my loved ones. And so, you know, my thought is there's usually always something you can do. You have to figure out what that is, and then you may have to to train that way. I know that's a that's kind of a again, I'm broad brushing it there, but that's kind of where I would start. If you want something a little bit more detailed, just hit me up in the email. The next one is from Shannon from Pennsylvania, one of my favorite places to go to. Uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Shannon wanted some concealed carry tips. Uh, again, that's a wide uh, that's a wide topic, but I'll give you just a few shooting off my uh, shooting off the hip. I would say the first and foremost that I, I see out of a lot of concealed carry holders is um, they just don't carry enough. It's crazy. They do a big push to get their permit, and they'll go get their permit, and that gun stays in a safe or it stays. Uh, you know, in a drawer, it stays somewhere other than on their person when they're out and about in public. So get in the habit of carrying. Um, make sure that you are training regularly with it. And that would include a diet of regular dry fire practice and live fire as well. Obviously, right now, um, ammo is pretty sti- stiff, so I would plus up on the dry fire practice. Uh, if you have to, but really getting comfortable with your weapon. Uh, a lot of times at classes, if they're more beginning uh, oriented classes, we'll have show, folks show up, and uh, it's just clear they're not comfortable with their with their with their firearm, which is fine. It's fine to show up at a class like that. I mean, that's one of the reasons why they take the class is because they want to get some more hands on. But making sure that you're comfortable with it. And as you uh, can manipulate it safely and you get more confidence, it'll show. And then your your skill set will increase as you go along. The other thing I would say is a big, uh, a big ticket item would be to be intentional about your choice of holster. You got some people that'll spend a lot of money on a gun and do a lot of research about a gun and then get a $3 holster to put it in. And that will... Um, if you ever have to use that in a defensive uh, situation, uh, you are you're really setting yourself up for failure. You want a good, sturdy. I prefer a Kydex holsters, but I have seen some leather ones that are that are um, pretty pretty good. But I I would really focus on getting a solid holster that's going to keep that weapon attached to your person that's not going to swim around uh, that you're not going to index the trigger as you're tr- as you're drawing and presenting to the threat uh, and it's going to keep it safely where it belongs and so do your do your research on your shoulder uh, holster as well all right finally we're going to get to Tim from Ohio he asks how do we stop the gun gra- grabbers personally well, <laughs> how do we stop them personally or permanently? Well, uh, I understand the um, the frustration, but we have to understand. I, I think we need to rephrase or reframe the way we look at this issue. Freedom and our freedom 
our freedoms is a generational struggle, right? We Every generation is going to have to struggle and fight to maintain their freedom. If you don't, it's going to be taken away from you, and we're experiencing that right now. Now, why is it that we, um, we're having so much problems? Is it because we don't have laws that are protecting us? No, nope, we've got the Second Amendment, right? We have the Second Amendment, but the people who choose uh, to whether um, on how they enforce it and interpret are the issues. So Second Amendment's been the same since it was drafted by the Founding Fathers, but now it seems like it's less and less helpful to us. Why? Because the people who are in power that are interpreting it, right, are not interpreting it in the way that it was intended. And so the issue is not whether or not we have the laws on the on the books. We've got that. It is the culture of those who are doing the interpretation. They don't share they don't come from a culture that shares an appreciation for the second amendment and the right to defend yourself. Right? So that's a cultural issue, not a legal issue in my opinion. So how do we change that? What we do what what folks and and used to do they engaged in the culture right getting involved in shooting sports particularly in youth sports you know what are you doing to make sure that those who are growing up behind you uh, are seeing value in the exercise of their second amendment rights what kind of charities are you involved in? And I wouldn't say just, you know, those charities that are just legal think tanks or legal, you know, lobbying groups, right? Again, because that gets us back to the same people. You can, I'm not, they are necessary. We need those entities. But again, if we're focusing everything on elections and putting laws on the books, um, that's a, that's a, I mean, that's a, that's how we got here, right? Because we focused on that and we neglected the culture and now we're paying the price for it. So get mentoring youth, educating friends and our family, getting involved in shooting sports and promoting those things, um, introducing new shooters um, to the culture, mentoring people. That's that's I think that's the answer. You know, we like I said, we rely heavily on laws and elections. Uh, you know, that's that's been uh, for folks that are. Um, Conservative tend to focus on that versus look at the left. I mean, for them, activism really is a, is a religion. They focus on the culture. They get vocal about it. They um, they protest. They have marches. They raise awareness. They do grassroots organizational things. Um, you know, they they are very plugged in, and they see it as generational. Right? They eat and live and breathe this stuff, and um, we don't. And that's why we're losing. And that that's why, you know, it took us 30 years to get here. It's going to take us 30 years to get out. And so we who are more conservative, right, or uh, traditionalist, what, however you want to categorize it, in my opinion, we need to get back to addressing culture and getting involved and not outsourcing that to a politician because we've seen where that got us. All right, guys. Hey enjoyed it. I hope that uh, this was helpful to you. I hope that uh, that you learned a thing or two about ambush and, and uh, ambush mitigation strategies. We've got a lot more to come on the Pearl Snap Tactical podcast. If you have any questions, 
Just send them to info at baratusdefense.com. That's info at baratusdefense.com. I've been your host, Mark, with Pearl Snap Tactical. We'll see you next week. Stay sharp.